Hello, welcome to Conversations in Calvinism. I'm Dan Chapa, and I'm joined as always by my good friend, Turton Fan. How's it going today? It's going great. Great to talk with you. Likewise, yeah, always good to see you. So um, today we have kind of a follow-up discussion on, frankly, two different episodes. So we did one episode where we talked about total depravity and the necessity of grace and that sort of thing. And I think that's where we get into the scriptural reasons why neither of us are Pelagian or um, that sort of thing. And so I highly recommend people check out that episode on total depravity as it gets into the scriptural reasons. Um, but in short, um, passages like in John 6, 44, um, Christ says, no man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So that is of vital importance as, as is the rest of the discussion and scriptures that we get into there. But we also talked about Guillaume Bion's uh, uh, argument with regards to Pelagianism. And what we didn't touch on in that episode is, well, what about semi-Pelagianism? Um, so with that said, in this episode, hopefully we can touch on a, a little bit of the history of the, I guess, the aftermath after um, Augustine was uh refuted Pelagius and Pelagianism was condemned. What happened and what is, and potentially how does that impact how we should understand semi-Pelagianism? So with that said, um, I guess uh, any initial thoughts here before we dive into some of the historic material? Nope, let's uh, just aim to keep it as much as we can factual and short and sweet and hopefully people enjoy the some of the historical theology aspects of this as opposed to being this trying to turn this into debate yeah sure and so I'll, I'll say this for right now probably we just simply won't have time in this episode to cover uh the reformation and how reformers might have used the term how roman catholics might have used the term so hopefully we'll cover that in some future episode um but for right now we're going to be looking at the aftermath of augustine and pelagius so with that said let's pull this chart up first here okay can you see that looks great so i threw together a quick timeline um so this is mostly dealing with things that are going to be relevant to after Pelagius. Um, but Augustine kept going after Pelagius was condemned. So the first event on this, as if it was a timeline, is the uh, Council of um, Melivius. Um, and that's in North Africa. And that's very close to where Augustine lived. And... Um, they condemned Pelagianism, as did the Council of Carthage. So there was two, basically two primary African councils that condemned Pelagianism. And so the, the dates, although I'm basing the dates on historical sources, even the historical sources themselves, the people that have done the research are not quite sure what exactly those dates are. But they estimate 1416, 1418. I've seen some that said 1411, or I'm, not, I'm sorry, not 14. 416 or 418 some have estimated 411 but it's in that uh rough ballpark and those councils effectively um condemned pelagianism and ended pelagianism as it is in terms of the pure pelagianism um immediately Almost immediately after that, though, Augustine continues to write 
on the relationship between God's grace and salvation and argue against human strength. And he's writing against another group, not Pelagius, not Celestius, but um, the Massaleans. And so that's represented on that third uh, block. And so he's from in Africa and he's writing against the Massaleans. And the Massaleans are in the what we would call now the south of France. And then the fourth event is the Council of Ephesus. And although this is highly over, overly simplifying it, they essentially rubber stamped um, the Council of, of uh, Carthage. They didn't um, get into and define Pelagianism for themselves, although they said that Pelagius and Celestius were heretics. And that was the ecumenical council. And, the, and that council of Ephesus was dealing with other things, uh, um, Christological issues. But uh, that happened in 431. Okay. Um, so from there, in uh, um, John Cassian dies in Marseille, which would have been very close to where these Massaleans were. And so he dies in 435. And we'll look at uh, some, some things that John Cassian had to say, um, which were, are going to potentially be relevant to understanding semi-Pelagianism. And then around 475, there's the Council of Arles, which condemns predestinarianism. And this, there was one individual by name, the name of Lucian, and he, you could think of him as like a hyper-Augustinian or something like that, but he, he took Augustine's teachings and then went wait, uh, quite a bit further than Augustine ever went with them. And he gets uh, confronted by this council and he ends up recanting, but the position of predestinarianism gets condemned. And that happened in around 475. I've seen other dates for it, 472, 473, some, but somewhere around that time, uh, there was a council of ours that condemned predestinarianism. And then um, in 529, the council of Orange uh, convenes, and that's the probably the more famous council. And it uh, ends, basically ends the debate. And in, I, although this is anachronistic language, it effectively ends the heresy of semi-Pelagianism at that time, um, as far as a question of, as to whether that is orthodox theology or not. So um, that's a rough timeline to put some of these historical sources into context so we can look at uh, historical sources itself. But, um, and we'll look at the actual historical sources that are talking uh, through some of these details, but um, do you have any um, thoughts or comments on just the timeline slash map that uh, has been laid out here? I would say that there's certain points on it that I would probably push back on if this were more of a debate. Like, the, um, pro I mean, if we were if we were kind of debating the points, I would probably say that the Council of Arles is more about addressing the errors of one person, one particular priest there, and not about the general movement. Like, associate. So John Cassian casts a big shadow. He's an important historical figure. He's uh, from the area of Marseille, and I think the Massalinians are just called that because of their association with Marseille. Uh, but 
Lorenz is right there next to uh, Marseille. There's like the island of Lorenz. There's a monastery there. I think Vincent of Lorenz is probably from that that particular monastery. There's this uh, focal point of pushback against Augustine coming from Marseille, Lorenz, the, Masse uh, the Masseans, uh, that isn't fully Augustinian and it's not fully Pelagius, but of course, because of the Augustine, Augustine fighting Pelagius, you know, there's some, uh, there's different ways to look at it. And whether I, I, they didn't use the term semi-Pelagian of themselves, their opponents didn't use the word semi-Pelagian of them. I think it may have actually gone uh, the other way and, and called them Pelagian. Uh, and if I recall correctly, the, the particular priest that's condemned at this council in Arles is actually has this weird mixture of views. So some of the views would be pretty Pelagian, like saying that people can be saved without grace, I think. And uh, but there's a variety. He has a variety of views, and it's a little bit hard to decipher exactly what's meant by it. In any event, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have seen that council as a very significant council in this overall timeline. But otherwise, I mean, I think I generally, I, I think I generally agree with your point, which is that it's not when Augustine kind of won that battle against Pelagius. That wasn't the end of all theological discussions, and everyone just said, "Okay, uh, uh, we're just accepting everything Augustine said." Carte blanche, no corrections to be made to Augustine. No one ever criticized him again, and he became known as the father of this new. Uh, new view or the one champion of orthodoxy or something like that so there there is continued debate as you said from uh for, for the next i mean through through the council of orange i don't know i can't i actually don't know you say this ends the debate i don't recall i know for a fact for example that there are the the, the commentaries of pelagius end up getting used throughout the middle ages in various forms, not his Pelagian errors per se, but but his commentaries, his writings, are still kept in one form or another in use throughout the Middle Ages. Sometimes, like uh, some of them circulated, like the someone recently pointed out that I had a quotation in there that I had attributed to Jerome. It's actually. Do you think there's a uh, authors that are advocating for? The denial of prevenient grace or denying the priority of grace, you know, after the Council of the Orange that um, think that they are going to win the predominant view of the church in the West. So if Before you focus the it down narrow, yeah, yeah, so if you focus it down narrowly like that on the specific points that the Council of Orange debates, I would say I would again qualify this because we're talking about the with the Council of Orange and Arles and even Melivius and Carthage, all of these are Western councils. The, the only one that's on this list is that's not a Western council is the Ecumenical Council of Ephesus, which, as you said, kind of rubber stamps Carthage. It's not the point of that that uh, council. It, they don't really. It's not one of the main points they're debating. And from what I've seen, the Eastern theologians, although 
I'm sure they've heard of Augustine. They don't have that same kind of uh, reliance on Augustinian theology, such that they have the they would kind of be directly involved in the debate. So I can't speak at all, really, about whether it's whether the Council of Orange does anything in the East. But in the West, I think it's probably fair to say that there's not a significant pushback on like of people trying to find some other region of the West uh, to undermine this Council of Orange. And I suspect that's because I could be wrong, but I think that the Bishop of Rome ultimately supports the holding of that council. And then subsequent popes aren't swayed to, to reverse that pope's decision. I could be wrong sure. about that. But no. Sure. So uh, let's go ahead and jump into... So the the Council of Carthage, um, which ended uh, Pelagianism, uh, for the most part. I mean, like you said, like you said, you know, people can um, look at it different ways, but um, for the most part, Pelagianism ended here. So, you know, just to summarize, you know, it says the key points: Canon one, Adam was not created by God, subject to death. Right. So death entered the world because of Adam's sin. Um, so Adam wasn't created immortal, uh, was created essentially immortal somehow or other, but um, because of his sin, death entered the world. Um, the next point is that infants are baptized for the remission of sins. Now, this is interesting um, when it gets into not only the baptism of infants, but the reason for the baptism of infants is, is for their salvation. But the uh, implication is that in, infants are born condemned for their uh, for their union with Adam, and then um, that the grace of God not only gives us permissions of sins, but affords us aid that we sin no more. Right. So that basically means in regeneration we receive power to um, avoid sins, and it's only by that grace that we receive God's strength that we're able to avoid sins. And that the grace of God gives not only knowledge of our duty, but inspires within us a desire that may will accomplish what we know. That's basically saying, don't play your games with the word grace. It's not just simply teaching. It's it's more than that. Uh, grace is, is something that inspires um, within us uh, that change. It's God's grace working those good deeds in us. Um, without grace, uh, we can do nothing good. Um, that... It's not only humble, but also true to say, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So this idea of being completely sinless, especially being completely sinless without grace is is incorrect and anti-scriptural. Um, that the Lord's Prayer um, and the saints say for themselves, forgive us our trespasses. So it's right for even believers to say, forgive us, because we actually sin, we're not perfect. And then that the saints say with accuracy, forgive us our trespasses. So th these are... Um, targeted at this idea of perfection. So, you know, there's lots of details we could get into, but that in essence um, defines uh, Pelagianism. And so I think what, what we see centered around is Pelagianism involves denial of original sin, the denial of the need for grace, and then affirmations of perfection and that sort of thing. That, that's the nexus around Pelagianism itself. Although we could get into a lot more, um, I think that at a very high level view, that's what I see being condemned here and by the Council of, of Carthage. How would you is is that a fair summary of the condemnation of Pelagianism, or would you point to some other aspects here to get to the essence of the 
what was condemned. Generally speaking, I like your summary. I there is a an even higher le level summary uh, that's sometimes given, which is that Pelagianism is the denial of the necessity of grace. So it it in that the idea that people can obtain salvation without the assistance of grace is uh, sort of a Pelagian view. And that's a nice way to, when you boil it down that much, you definitely do lose something because like you said on, in here, there are also aspects of this that are not specifically about the grace per se, but things about uh, the continued existence of sin in the life of believers, the, um, on the previous slide, you had some about the baptism, even baptism of infants being uh, for the remission of sins. So, you know, if you boil, you know, the more you boil it down, the more you kind of lose of the edges. And the tricky thing is, uh, from the, the way that the church was looking at it at that time, they tended to end up ana uh, anathematizing the individual as well as specific doctrines of the individual. So Pelagius gets, you know, a mark through his name. And yet, as I said, some of his actual books go on to have continued copying and reception and usage, uh, even sometimes hidden under other names and, and not you know, directly quoted, but they continue to get used because he's, he's a brilliant guy. He's wrong, but he's a brilliant guy. Uh, and his errors, you know, people, I guess, ultimately, hopefully, are looking at it as we can salvage some of the good stuff and take out the bad stuff. But in terms of, I, you know, there's different ways to look at it, but ultimately, if you look at it, like with so many historical theology things, if you look at, let's say, Nestorianism, then you look to the council that condemned Nestorius, and you look at what doctrines were they condemning, and that's how you define Nestorianism. That's what you're doing here, where you go to the council of Carthage, condemning uh, Pelagius for his errors. Then you look at what are those errors that they're condemning, and more or less, I mean, there's always some soft edges to it, but more or less, that's what they're, uh, that's Pelagianism. Now, sometimes it's a mixture. Sometimes I'll say, they'll like accuse Pelagius of, I don't know, not not specifically Pelagius, but people sometimes got accused of multiple things. So they'll say, oh, well, he has this error and this error, and he participates in the errors of Arius, or the, and he participates in the errors of, you know, pick another person that, that went before. But my point is, I like the approach you're using. I like the idea of boiling it down to those points. And I, the other thing I just wanted to highlight was, if you saw those bullets, maybe you would just, you know, maybe you and our, my other Baptist friends would disagree that the infant baptism one has anything to do with scripture. But in each of the other cases, at least, you have to see that the, the rebuttal that the council's providing is not just, hey, we have apostolic succession, you're out, dude. Or we're at, we have apostolic succession, so we magically know what's truth. No, in each case, they're, saying, they're tying their response to him to scripture, and they're using scripture as the authority on which to decide these. So back to you. Right. Right. So hard on the heels of that condemnation of Pelagianism, Augustine started writing responses to the Massalians. Now he treats them differently than he does the Pelagians. We'll see that. But, um, but just uh, in his book um, on the predestination of saints, um, 
book one. Uh, this is parts uh, or paragraphs two and three. I'll just read them. Um, so, in those brothers of ours, on whose behalf your pious love is solicited, has have attained with Christ's church to the belief that human race is born obnoxious to sin of the first man, and that none can be delivered from the evil save by the righteousness of the second man. Moreover, they have obtained to the confession that men's wills are anticipated by God's grace and to the agreement that no one can suffice for himself, either for beginning or from completing any good work. These, these things, therefore, unto which they have attained, being held fast, accordingly uh, distinguish them from the error of Pelagius. Okay, so he's uh, saying, look, if, as long as you're saying there's a necessity for grace and that, uh, you, you know, you're that far, you're distinguished from Pelagius. So he, um, that's that's good. That he's setting, he's setting kind of this outward boundary um, of, of Pelagianism. Now he comes, but he comes down in the, the third paragraph. But I see now we must reply to those who say that the divine testimonies which I have adduced concerning matters are of avail for this purpose to assure that we have faith. It's um, I'm sorry. Let me let me repeat. But I see that I must now reply to those that uh, who say that divine testimonies which I have adduced concerning this matter are of avail for this purpose to assure us we have faith itself of ourselves, but that its increase is of God. Or if faith were not given to us by him, but were only increased in us by him on the ground of the merit of its having begun in us. Okay, so now some people are saying, hey, look, you, Augustine, when you refuted Pelagius, you brought forward divine testimony, scriptural passages, but this is what they're teaching. They're saying that the, the divine the passages, the scriptures themselves are saying, we start faith, but God grows it in us. That's basically what they're saying. Um, thus, there is no departure from the opinion which Pelagius himself uh, constrained to condemn in the judgments of the bishops of Palestine, as it is testified in the same proceedings, that the grace of God is a given according to merits. Um, if it is not of God's grace that we begin to believe, but rather that on account of this beginning, an addition is made to us of a more full and perfect belief, and so that we first give the beginning of our faith to God, and its supplement may also be given to us, whatever else may, we may be faithfully to ask. So I see two big concerns on Augustine's part here. The first is that we, in and of ourselves, um, start having faith, but then God helps us. And he's concerned that God, that help that God's giving is being given according to our merits. So he's he's got two concerns here with this view of the Massalians that he's laying out. So he wants to say, nope, um, grace starts everything, including believing in the first place. And he is very concerned that, hey, look, if you say, you know, just to summarize this as, let's say someone says, well, God helps those that help themselves. But if you're saying that God, God is caused or the person has earned God's help and then God helps them, that's far worse. And I think he's highlighting that point as well, that uh, this, the grace, the response of this uh, respect. So if, if man starts conversion and then God responds to that in a 
because the person has earned some type of help from God, he's very concerned about that. And, and, and at that point, he just says, hey, look, you're back to where Pelagius was in the, from the get-go. So anyways, that's the way I take his passage, this, uh, this text here, um, and in terms of his uh, initial defining and, and concern with the Massilian position. What do you think? Yeah, I think I, I would tend to boil it down to the those two being sort of one and the same, being that the the position he's dealing that he's addressing here, this uh, position he's condemning as saying there's no departure from Pelagius, which is a little extreme, obviously, but you know people tend to speak extremely. Anyway, the the position is that he's condemning is this idea that first we of our own accord have faith and then God rewards that by giving us grace, which from Augustine's standpoint means we merit the grace. So if, if that's the case, that we merit grace, that's nonsense for Augustine because grace can't be merited, otherwise it's not grace. So he views this as an, a, a, a significant departure from orthodoxy because it undermines the graciousness of grace and suggests that human beings are enough you know have enough ability apart from god even to start the process of salvation so he wants to take that away and say no salvation is all of god therefore even the beginnings of faith are from god by grace so yeah i think we're more or less on the same uh, page in terms of that analysis. Cool. And I think on the next slide, yeah, so the point on this slide is that Augustine isn't alone in identifying this issue. Uh, Hillary is corresponding with Augustine, and he sees the same issue, right? So this is what Hillary says in one of his letters to Augustine. The Massilians agree that in Adam all men perish, and that no one can be saved from that death by his own choosing. Okay, so he's giving the Massilians some credit, um, but they assert that it is consistent with truth or congruent with preaching that when the opportunity for obtaining salvation is announced to men who are prostrate and never able to rise up by their own powers, they can be cured of their illness by the merit of their having willed and believed in that an increase of their faith and their total cure follows as an effect so i think his language here uh, he's got the language of merit and effect like cause and effect so in essence the um the response of preaching so so if, if there's a sinner that can't save himself but he can respond to preaching and he can respond in such a way that he merits uh some help from god and that help from God follows as an effect so that, that the belief becomes a cause and then the help from God becomes the effect. And that's his, uh, that's his concern here. So then uh, going on, otherwise they agree that no one is uh, able to suffice for himself either to begin the work or to carry it through to completion. Neither do they think that the fact that everyone who is sick with a terrified and suppliant will to be made well is to be ascribed as a reason for their being uh, cured. As to the words "believe and thou shalt be saved," they assert that no one of these is uh, that one of these is demanded while the other is offered in such a way that if that which is demanded is complied with, 
on that account will that uh, what is offered be given. They think it follows from this that faith must be exi exhibited by him to whose nature it is granted by the creator, and they think that no nature is so debased or destroyed that it ought not or cannot will to be healed. For which reason either it is healed of its illness, or if it does not will it, it is punished by being left with it. They think it is not a denial of grace to say that grace is preceded by such a will as can only seek its physician, but can do nothing by itself. Okay, so they, there they even use an illustration. Hey, hey, look, you can be in a sickbed and want to be cured, but you can't cure yourself. And he's saying that is, so, you know, if, if you can want to be cured without God's grace, if you can want to be saved without God's grace, even if you can't save yourself, if you could just want that salvation in and of yourself without God's grace being the, um, be, being, be, being behind that, that is uh, the position of the Massalians that Hillary is rejecting. Um so for the most part, I think this is this kind of uh, just from a different lens confirms what Augustine was focused on, which is the priority of grace and that grace isn't something that we can cause or merit in God. Do you agree so far? Uh, yeah, I think we're, we're still tracking. I would just point out this is Hillary of Arles, not perhaps the more famous Hillary of Poitiers. Just, uh, just to clarify, this is uh, this particular Hillary, Hillary of Arles, is one who uh, ended up going going to war with the Bishop of Rome, who interfered with and and tried to uh, felt like he was in control of who gets to be the bishop or archbishop there in uh, in Arles, and the 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 way that the the, the uh, I think it's the Catholic Encyclopedia puts it this way. Uh, it says, it's evi this evidently arose from the fact that the respective rights of the court of Rome and the Metropolitan were not sufficiently clearly established at that time, and that the right of appeal to the Pope, among others, was not explicitly enough recognized, which is a very nice way of saying uh, Roman Catholicism wasn't in place yet. So uh, <laughs> just kind of put that to the side. It's not the main focus of this discussion. Please continue no, on. It's no, that's a that's a helpful background. Thank you. Okay, now um, here's the opposite side. So this is John Cassian, who lived in this area, um, or at least died in this area. You know, I, I can't say for sure that he lived there. I suspect he did, but I know that he he ended up dying in the south of France there. But okay, this is what John Cassian has to say. Um, and when he sees in us some beginnings of a goodwill. He at once enlightens it and strengthens it and urges it on toward salvation, increasing that which he himself implanted or which he sees to have arisen from our own efforts. Okay, so this, uh, it, from John Cassian's work, seems to be denying a priority of grace, uh, denying prevenient grace. The necessity of prevenient grace might be another way to say it. Um, Cassian is or putting put it in more positive terms. He's just asserting that the human will is able without prevenient grace to respond positively to God, but not save itself. It's just, it can start 
moving towards conversion without a prevenient work of grace. Um, I could read the next piece, but do you agree with the, just what I'm saying as far as the, that first quote there? So, yeah, I mean, I think it's this is the this is exactly the position that we were just describing, where there's this first God sees something good from us, and then He gives grace in consequence of seeing that initial uh, movement from us. So he's he's coming from this from a different angle. Mar, uh, Hilary of Arles is a disciple, or at least a fan of, of Augustine. Uh, John Cassian is a disciple of John Chrysostom, and he's you know although he's like probably originally from Southern Gaul, or, which is now France, I guess. And at that time, you know, he had gone and spent some time in, in Egypt and had more connection in the East with some of the Eastern teachers, including apparently John Chrysostom. So he's got a different set of concerns, a different theological set of values. Right. Okay. So it, I think we... Um have a hard stop. So, okay. So let's touch on two quick things and then we can probably wrap up for this episode. So one key part of Augustine's solution here, I think is this, uh, this part in his letter to Sixus. Um, and he basically says, uh, he starts talking about merits, right? And he says, what merits of their own is one going to, uh, uh, is one set free going to boast for if his merits receive their due recompense, he would only be condemned. Are there then no merits of righteousness? Clearly there are, because they are righteous. Okay, so so Christians have good works, uh, for which we deserve some credit, I guess. But they have no merits in order to become righteous. And so he's, he basically is saying, hey, look, whatever whatever merits we have, whatever they might be, they don't save us. And I think Augustine has nailed it there. And then he goes on, for they were made righteous when they were justified. But as the apostle said, they were justified gratuitously by grace in Romans 3, uh, 24. So I think, I think that's a big part of, so we talked about there's two points. One is the denial of the priority of grace. And for that, obviously, you just need to assert the necessity of prevenient grace. But a second part of the solution is, okay, well, and this this is probably true for, for both of us, because both of us believe that people believe, people respond to the gospel. So we so we both have to hold, well, prevenient grace is absolutely necessary. God's grace works beforehand. But what we that's not enough to get past some Pelagianism. What we also have to say is when we believe, we are not meriting or earning salvation or, um, I guess, causally determining salvation, you know, different ways we could say it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's very important to say that not only is prevenient grace necessary, but also that, um, that our faith, nor our works or anything else that we do earns or merits salvation. Um, do you uh, do you agree with that part so far? I I don't necessarily agree with that distinction, but I'll just uh, I don't think it makes sense to debate it at this point unless you feel like there's some value to that. 
I think that it's a I think I agree with the big picture though. So Okay. Okay, fair enough. All right. So well, we could get into this, but uh, since we only have a few minutes left, I think here's what's important. So the Council of Orange, um, 1529, ended it. And it talks about the necessity of, of grace. But what I found interesting in this last time going around and, and reading through it is when I looked at the different uh, councils, the different canons, the way they describe that grace that helps us, the prevenient grace, they call it an infusion a working of the Holy Spirit, an inspiration. Um, that's the type of language they use for this prevenient grace. It's not just simply a revelation. It's not just a teaching. It's not just um, an um, uh, emotional appeal. It's not just a love relationship or something like that. It's not just an offer. They they talk about it in, 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 in languages. It's frankly a little hard to explain. Um, Sometimes, sometimes they, they they use scriptural language like um, enlighten or that sort of thing. So that, that's really helpful because then you can go to the scriptural passages they had in mind. But when they use words like inspiration, I at least to my knowledge, I'm not aware of a time where inspiration is used in scripture for um, prevenient grace for God's helping a person believe. Um, but you can tell what they mean by it is some type of internal working within us by the Holy Spirit um, that helps our fallen nature um, or, or changes our fallen nature. It might be a better way to say it, but basically overcomes the problems that we developed because of the fall. Because of the fall, we're in, an, in a fallen state. And this is what helps us out. So I know you have to go run soon and we can, we can wrap it here, but, uh, you, do you want to share a qu some quick thoughts before you bolt? No, no. I just I really appreciate your time going through this. I think it's important to see what the what was actually condemned, as you're pointing it out. So uh, that is vital for people to understand, and in terms of understanding the historical progression of theology. So thank you for for bringing this to our attention. All right. Thank you. God be with you. Also with you.